Well, good morning, faith family. I want to say hello to our faith family gathered in Lakeville and also our faith family gathered in the venue. I'd invite all of you, if you would, to turn in your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes. If you're new with us today, we are so glad that you're here. And over the last several weeks, uh, we've been in a series we've called The Search. And it's very relevant. It's unbelievably practical because it looks at the very things in life that you and I search for to try to find meaning, to try to make sense out of life. And we've looked at a a variety of different things. And we've been looking at this main character in the book, a man by the name of Koheleth. It's a Hebrew name that gets translated in Ecclesiastes as the preacher. And he's a very wise guy. And sometimes he says things that you don't necessarily want to hear, but they're nevertheless true. The book is intended to give you substance, to make you think about real life. And we're going to pick back up in chapter 5 this morning. And uh, this is going to be an issue that is relevant for every single one of you. All of you here, all of you in Lakeville, all of you in Venue, and here's why. Because you're here. You're at church. And that is exactly what Coeleth is going to address for us this morning. Let's look at chapter 5 as I ask you to please stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's Word. And let's look at Ecclesiastes 5 verse 1. This is going to be fun. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It's better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, There is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Would you pray for me now as we ask God to teach us? What a joy it is, O Father, to be uh, gathered with uh, your family. I pray that we understand the seriousness of these moments pray that we would take an honest look at our heart. Holy Spirit, we, as if you needed an invitation, we invite you into this place to do your work. Open our eyes to see what our hearts are really after. And I ask it in Jesus' name and for his glory. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I still remember the day it happened, and I remember where I was. My guess is many of you do too. 
I just arrived at the church where I was serving at the time. I walked inside the church past the, the main front office. I noticed my assistant and, and one of the associate pastors watching the TV. I, I didn't pay much attention to that, and so I, I just went on to my office. Until my assistant messaged me and said, you need to get down here quickly. So I rushed down the hall, I walked into the front office, and I remember specifically looking at the TV at those images that are forever in our mind, the attacks of 9-11. How many of you here, how many of you Lakeville, how many of you venue remember where you were on that day? My guess is, not only do you remember that, you may also remember that shortly after, people flocked to church. Churches were crowded. It was wall-to-wall in attendance. Most churches saw anywhere from 25 to 50% increase in attendance. Ed Young, who's a pastor of a large church in Texas, was interviewed and said, quote, after 9-11... We had over 20,000 people in attendance. It was the largest crowd in our history. But you may also remember that those numbers didn't hold up. Young goes on to say, I was disappointed the next weekend when we dropped to 16,000 and then 14,000 the weekend after that. The the quick decline was well documented in the media. USA Today had an article entitled, quote, Quick Dose of 9-11 Religion Soothes But Doesn't Change. Fox News had a headline entitled, quote, Church Attendance Back to Normal. Another media said, quote, A short-lived rush to church. George Barna of the Barna Research Group was asked, you know, he studies all this and looks at trends in churches and all that, and he was asked to give an explanation as to why the the sudden increase and then the quick decline, and what he said was fascinating. And if you've been with us, in Ecclesiastes, the language will sound very familiar. Here's what Barna said. After the attack, millions of nominally churched or generally irreligious Americans were desperately seeking something that would restore stability and, hear this, give them a sense of meaning in life. So they went to church. In other words, an event happened, a horrible, horrible event happened, and it caused people to start saying, wait a minute, this doesn't make any sense. Wait a minute, I've got a lot of questions that I need answers for, and instead of looking to things like work, or things like pleasure, or things like money, things we've already looked at in Ecclesiastes, they look to spirituality. To give them meaning in life. And faith family, that is not just true for national tragedies. That's also true for personal ones. 
The loss of a spouse, the loss of a job, a bad medical report, an economic crisis in your life. It may not be work that you turn to, it may be church or prayer or religion. And Coelith, this wise man in Ecclesiastes, has seen it a thousand times. He's seen the aftermath of 9-11 before there was a 9-11. It happened all throughout the ancient Near East, particularly in the life of ancient Israel. Help God, the, the Egyptians are coming. Don't you see they're about to kill us? All we see is water. God splits the sea. And whoo! They made it out alive. And what happens next? Look at those golden calves. Let's worship them. Assyria is coming. God help. This doesn't make any sense. Give us some answers. Oh, look at the God Asher. Maybe we should worship him. We're hungry. Feed us. You've promised us a land of abundance flowing with milk and honey. Sounds great to us. But I don't know. Those giants are awfully big. He's seen it a thousand times. And this wise man is giving you observations about life, whether you want to hear them or not, whether you like them or not. And one of his observations as he looks at the landscape of religion in the ancient Near East is this. Here's what I see. I see a lot of people running to God for answers in life with no intention of making him Lord of their life. You want me to be honest? You want me to be wise? You want me to tell you what the real reality is in life? People run to spirituality with no sense of really desiring God. It's John 6. We don't want bread of life. We just want sourdough. (laughs) Fill our stomachs again. And then if we're hungry again tomorrow, we'll come back and find you, Jesus. Oh, 9-11 wasn't new under the sun in regards to the spiritual landscape of people wanting to worship. And to that, Coelith gives you a warning. Here's what he's going to say. You need to understand that that's risky. Oh my, stop and think about it, people. Worship is a risky thing. Now, right here, I'm going to push you. This is going to be tense, and then you got to hang with me because it's going to get good. Hopefully it's good now, but it's really going to get good then, all right? And you just have to understand we're going to go through some, some tension. And the tension is, do you realize how risky going to the house of God is? Look at verse 1 of chapter 5. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. That is, translation, be cautious. Be on guard. Look at verse 2. Do not be rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty. What he's saying is, proceed with caution when you go to worship. You're going to go to the temple? You want to go to the temple? You want to go worship? Oh, You might want to think that. You might want to rethink what's happening. Now, why would you say he, he would say worship is so risky? Why would he say that? Probably because of things like this. 
Leviticus chapter 10, verse 1. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them and they died. That might get your attention. You don't walk into the temple in the Old Testament, grab your latte, and play church for an hour. Unless you have a good life insurance policy. It's risky, is what Coel is saying. And you might say, well, whew, thank goodness that we don't live in the Old Testament. We live in the New Testament. All right, I'll give you 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where they're messing around with the Lord's Supper. Wasn't the chiclet, right, that, that we often use, right? They're messing around with the Lord's Supper. And here's what they say. Let a person examine, Paul says, himself, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak, ill, and some have died. And I'm just going to let the tension set. Or what about Hebrews 12, 28? Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship. With reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Faith family, God is a holy God. He is so incredibly holy that even angelic beings, I'm talking about beings to whom when people are in their presence, they run in fear. And yet those beings say to God every day, all day, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. There are no gods before Him. No nations can rise against Him. No power can overthrow Him. He is not to be belittled, played with, downsized, or mocked. He is always has been and always will be a consuming fire of holiness. That's who you're dealing with when you come into the presence of the Lord. And that reality will either do in you one of two things. One, it will create in you a healthy approach to worship that is reverence and awe or it will create in you an unhealthy approach to worship that is distance and being disconnected you start to feel like God is out to get you so you're guarded one of my favorite I guess you could call it a cartoon is, is Farside Anybody, any Farside fans? One of my favorite Farsides is one that's called God at His Computer. Look at it. You have a guy <laughs> walking down the street and he doesn't know there's a piano over his head. And you scale back and there's God who is clearly Gandalf. 
right, from the Lord of the Rings. Old man, white hair, and he's about to hit a button on his keyboard, and you may not be able to read it, but the button says, smite. In other words, God at his computer is, smite me, almighty smiter, right? Dropped a piano on his head. Now, we kind of laugh at that, but my guess is there are some of you here today who think that way. Because when something happens in your life, your first thought is, God, what are you punishing me for? As though God is in heaven with a baseball bat and his idea is just to wait. I mean, he's just sitting there waiting. You step one inch out of line and whammy. And just for full honesty and authenticity here, I've been there. I may have even told you before, there was a time I was playing basketball, we was in high school, I got elbowed in the nose, like unbelievable pain, bloods everywhere, and my very first thought, my very first thought is, God, what did I do wrong? What did I do wrong? What are you getting back at me for? And that unhealthy view of God begins to create in us a desire for distance. And that's what Coelith has. Look at verse 7. He says, For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must Fear. Now, he's not talking about fear of the Lord in the healthy sense. He's talking about fear of the Lord in the unhealthy sense. You say, how do you know? Answer context. The context of the passage and the context of the book. Coelith is advocating for distance from God because you may get yourself in trouble. And the reason why worship is so risky like this, according to Coelith, is because, everybody, right here, Lakeville Venue, because... The tendency is for most of us is to go through a routine. That's dangerous. Look back at verse 1. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Draw near. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. Do, Do you see the comparison there in the text? There are some people who draw near to listen, and there are some people who are just offering the sacrifice of fools. That is, they're just going through the motions, and we'll see that again in just a moment. What Coelith is saying here is when I look at spirituality in the ancient Near East and people going to the house of God, you may not like this, but I'm just going to say it. Coelith is saying most of it's routine and pointless. It's no different than their weekly trip to Walmart. It's what they've done all their life. They're just hanging out with friends. They'll sing some songs, hear a message that's too loud and way too long, give a little bit of money, recite a creed, do a sacrament, and then leave, and they're not any different whatsoever. And Coelith is saying, that's insane! Given how high the stakes are, I don't know, like you might die. You're going to play church. You're you're really going to play temple? It's scary. So this guy is so judgmental. 
No. He's just saying what God already said. Isaiah 1. Here's what God says of His own people and their worship. Isaiah 1 verse 12. When you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Ugh. Incense is an abomination to me, new moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I can't endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feast my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Translation, you want to know what God hates? God hates this. In worship, when there's a a lot of external action and no change of heart. Raise your hands all you want. I ain't even looking. Pray, sing, sing so loud you get goosebumps. I don't even hear a word because it's just the machine of worship. And Coelith sees this happening, at least in the ancient Near East, in two primary ways. My guess is we see them this way also. The first one is wordy prayers. Wordy prayers. That is this. People who try to impress God with their impressive prayers. Like this. Easy for you to recite the Lord's Prayer. I pledge allegiance to the flag. Dear God, our Father, Art, who is up in heaven, and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, for the smorgasbord you have so aptly lain at our table, as it is on earth, in the helicopter, with liberty and justice for all. Do not lead us to the temptations. Because we are tired of them and their dancing. By day, day by day, by day, forever and ever and ever. Amen. All right, now that's exactly what Quell is saying. That just going on and on, you're just reciting things. There's no heart engaged whatsoever. Look at it in verse 2. He says, Don't be rash with your mouth, that is your prayers. Nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word, that is, you go on and on and on and on. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. That is, he's not impressed. He's not impressed at all. Now, why is this a big deal? Why is this a problem? Because, right here, the focus of that kind of praying isn't God. It's us. Did I use the right words? Did I look good? Did people like what I said? And by the way, sometimes people won't pray publicly for the same reasons, and it's the same thing. In other words, I'm not going to pray because I don't want to look bad. I might use the wrong words. What's the, the root of that? that? That's how you pronounce root, not root. I don't even know. That's not even a word, root. It's root. The root of that, the core of that is what? I want to look good, not worship God. 
And we just ramble on and on. D.L. Moody said, quote, Some of our prayers should be cut short on both ends and set on fire in the middle. (laughs) It's just blah. And if you're feeling like I'm pushing the line, it's what Jesus said. Matthew 6, verse 5, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners. They may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. In other words, right here, right here. His issue is not praying in public. His issue is praying for publicity. It's praying the routine prayer so you can mark it off your checklist. I wish we had time, we don't, to go and read Luke 18. But do you remember that story that Jesus told of the Pharisee and the tax collector? You got one guy, he's in the temple. Oh man, he's dressed right, probably has on a suit and tie, looks good. He's got the right posture, he says the right words. I'm not like this, I'm not like that, I'm not like this, I'm not like that. I do this and I do that. And man, he is so incredibly impressive. If you were in the temple that day, you'd look at that guy and say, man, he'd make a good elder. Sign that guy up. And then over here in the corner, we got somebody who's not dressed right. Doesn't even hold his head up. Put your head up, son. He's not even saying the right words. He doesn't even know what to say. Bless his heart. He's in the temple. Doesn't even know what to say. His prayers are so tiny. They're so small. It's only one sentence. All he said is, God have mercy on me, a sinner. One sentence, that's it. And Jesus says, that man went home justified. I want real. I don't care if it's one sentence and you stutter your way through. I want it real. I don't want this moralistic garbage. You look good before others. That's your reward. It's not acceptable to me. Because what makes me sick is external acts where the heart's not engaged. Because it ain't worship. It's dangerous. And it's not just wordy prayers that Coeleth sees as common in temple worship. It's also weak promises. Verse 4. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for He has no pleasure in fools. I just love Coelho. By now, he's my homeboy. All right? After several weeks, he's just not PC. He tells it like it is. Pay what you vow. It's better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? What's he saying? He's saying this. You want me to be honest? You mean to tell you what is real as I look at religion and temple worship in the ancient Near East? Here's what I see. Not only do people pray prayers they don't mean, they make promises they have no intention on keeping. They vow vows. And they have no intention whatsoever in keeping those vows. How many of us, don't raise your hand, how many of you have ever in your outside voice or inside voice said this, God, if you get me out of this, I promise I will give a little. Go to church. Become a monk. 
whatever, all right? If you know your church history, that one turned out okay, all right? But, but you've said, God, I make a vow. You didn't give any thought to it. You just want it out. I promise I'll do this. Coelho says, don't do that. Oh, that, no, no. And not only those kinds of vows, but what about other vows you made before the Lord? Marriage vows, membership commitments, baby dedications. Did you intend to take those things seriously? Because if not, Coelho is saying, you are playing with fire. Look at verse 6 again. The last phrase, he says, Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? That is, don't you know that God is like the Incredible Hulk? You know this? Like, do you remember what he used to say? He used to say, don't make me angry because you won't like me when I'm angry. Coelho is saying, don't make him angry. Because what he may do is destroy the work of your hands. And if you've been tracking through the book of Ecclesiastes, you know that Coelho thinks that's all you got. The best you can do is eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow you're going to die. The work of your hands is all you can enjoy while you can. And so he's essentially saying this. Since there are no guarantees in life anyways, the odds are going to go down significantly if you poke God with the short stick of your empty promises. It's dangerous, folks. And you're like, I'm so glad I came to church today. Sweet. The good news is coming. Before we get there, Coel has some advice for you. He always has advice for you. And here's his advice. It's very simple to see it in the text. Find the therefore. Do you see it? Last phrase of verse 2. Therefore, let your words be few. Sorry, Matt Redman, and your little worship song, you got this one wrong. All right? I like the song. It's not what Coelith means. Coelith is saying... Say as little as possible because you may get yourself in trouble. Follow me. Worship is risky because most of the time it's routine with your praying and your promises. So the best you can do is zip it. Say as little as possible. Can I ask you something? Like, has your mouth ever gotten you in trouble? Like this guy. You know why I pulled you over? Depends on how long you were following me. Why don't we just take it from the top? Here goes. I sped. I followed too closely. I ran a stop sign. I almost hit a Chevy. I sped some more. I failed to yield at a crosswalk. I changed lanes in the intersection. I changed lanes without signaling while running a red light and speeding. Is that all? No. I have unpaid parking tickets. Well, we can relate. A lot of us know what it's like to have experienced that moment where we thought, I wish I would have just kept my mouth shut. I wish I would have just been quiet. Like husbands, sometimes it's best to not say a word. It's not going to help. Or some of you have those children that have to get the last word in, like my Audrey. Or, or uh, uh, politicians who could use just a little less time on Twitter. Just a little. Just a little less. All right? Or what Coelith would say is this. Worshippers who should pause 
before they promise. Don't let your mouth write checks your lifestyle can't cash. What are you, crazy? God could smite you. So here's my advice, Quelleth would say. The best you can do, given what's at stake, is say as little as possible. Appease God with your worship, but don't get yourself in trouble. And all God's people said, no! Well, that'd be a terrible ending right there to be like, uh, what do I do next Sunday? Coelho's summary is this. Worship is risky because it tends to be routine and God doesn't like routine, so be reserved. What is the response? The response is this. He's right. He's right in this sense. God is holy and worship should be taken seriously. Amen? You shouldn't come to God with wrong motives, with half-hearted prayers, or promises you don't mean. Coelith is right then and now, right here. Lakeville, venue, everybody, right here. Which is why you need Jesus. Jesus turns everything Coelith has said, Old Testament, on its head. Let me show you. Because of Jesus, and only because of Jesus, worship is no longer risky. Follow me. Listen to 1 John 4, verse 10. 1 John 4, verse 10 says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us, and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation simply means sacrifice. Right here, translation. God loves you so much, He sent Jesus to be your sacrifice. That's what the text is saying. Now follow me. I'm going to give you some great news. Great news. I may come off the stage. This is so exciting news, and I'm serious. Listen, you ready? Here it is. You're a terrible worshiper. I'll take amens however I can get them. (laughs) You're an awful promise keeper. So I thought this was supposed to be good news. It is. Because God loves you in that state so very much that He sent His Son to the cross to offer Himself up as your sacrifice for worship. The Coelith is right. You can't offer acceptable worship. That's why Jesus offered it for you. So the response isn't, okay, pastor, I'll come back next week and I'll sing better. No! You come back next week the same way you came this week in the name of Jesus and God will say, no matter how bad you are, that's accepted. Because Jesus is your sacrifice, not your vain offerings. You only need one offering, and His name is Jesus. And that sacrifice changes everything as it relates to worship and confidence before God. Keep reading in 1 John 4, verse 17. 
By this is love perfected in us so that we, watch this, we have confidence for the day of judgment. That is to stand before God. Because as he is, so also we are in the world. There is, underline this, no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Here's the simple statement, all eyes right here, Lakeville venue, you with me, here it is. Because of the cross, you don't have to be afraid. You see, we have something now Coeleth didn't know then in the Old Testament. They were looking for it, but it hadn't happened yet. And what that is, is Jesus The good news of the gospel is that God has a smite button and he's already hit it. It's called Calvary. And that's why we can come and worship and not walk on eggshells and not be afraid and laugh and enjoy and be serious all at the same time the worship of God when we come genuinely in the name of Christ. Do you want to avoid worship that is risky? There's only one way. you got to come in Jesus' name. Everything else is play in church, and that's dangerous. Here's the second thing. Because of Jesus, worship is no longer to be routine. Because of Jesus, worship doesn't need and shouldn't be routine. We need a paradigm shift here. I need 45 more minutes. I ain't got that, but I'll give you a little bit. Do you remember in John 4 when Jesus encountered the Samaritan woman? And he calls her past. He, he, he lays it out. All of her husbands, all her background, all her relationships. And she's like, dope. Um, I better change the subject. You're probably a prophet, religious man. Let's talk about worship. You know what? Our fathers say you're supposed to worship at that mountain. I know you Jews say it's in Jerusalem, but what's her paradigm? Ritual. Routine. You, You go to this mountain and you pray that prayer and you do that thing. I know some of you do it in Jerusalem, but okay. But the thing is, is, is you just do that. That's what worship is. And then Jesus drops the bomb that changes the worship paradigm forever. Look at what he says in John 4 and beginning at verse 23. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called the Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. What did He just say? Listen, listen. It's not ritual anymore. It's not routine anymore. It's relational. Because it's not about a mountain, it's about a person. I so wish American evangelicalism would finally wake up and get this. Crucify your worship checklist. Well, it ain't worship if you don't have this instrument and you can't have that instrument. It's got to be this volume. can't be that loud. It needs to be this style, not that style. you got to wear this and not wear that. you got to say this and not say that. Get over it. Get your mind off rituals and get it on the risen Christ. 
Because if you don't, you didn't worship. I don't care what elements of worship you had. Worship isn't about elements. Worship is about Messiah, which means the question is not, did you like worship? It's this. Did you encounter Christ? Anything short of that is meaningless. And dangerous. And yet, Many Christians in many churches will go on talking about what mountain it's supposed to be at. And they'll miss worshiping in spirit and truth the person of Jesus Christ. Do you want to avoid routine worship? Here's how you do it. You show up here every single week and you focus on Jesus, not your preference. And you encounter the living Christ. Number three, and lastly, because of Jesus, not only is it not risky, not only is it not routine, but it's also not to be reserved. That is, should you play it safe in worship? Let me close with this. In the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews is writing to some Christians who are considering playing it safe. If they go back into Jerusalem, it's safe. If they keep pressing on with Jesus, they're going to be persecuted. And so the writer of Hebrews says this in chapter 10, verse 19. It's one of my favorite passages. Therefore, brothers, since we, notice, have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. That's very different than Ecclesiastes 5. By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest, a great priest over the house of God, watch this. Notice the shift. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. What's the point? Everybody, everybody. Kuelith is saying, here's the question. Why in the world would you draw near? That's insane. Do you realize the stakes? Do you realize the consequences? But the writer of Hebrews is asking a whole different question. And what's that question? How in the world could you not draw near? He ripped the veil. The curtain is torn. What boggles the mind is not why you wouldn't draw near. It's why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you come and access God when Christ has provided that opportunity for worship? The point, gospel worship is unreserved worship even for Norwegians. (laughs) Even in Minnesota. Yes. Why else are you here? Jesus ripped the veil so you have access to God and it is insane why you wouldn't go. Why you wouldn't draw near. Why you wouldn't worship. Would you just join me this morning in saying hallelujah to Jesus Christ because He has changed worship forever. Aren't you glad you're not stuck in Ecclesiastes 5 and you get to experience this very day the freedom of the gospel and worship? Yeah, you can, that's clap. It's awesome. 
So I ask you, what's your motivation? All right. Now, if you're visiting, we're, we're just glad that you're here. But if you're coming week after week after week, you've got to ask yourself, why? Tradition? Not enough. Are you here because you want bread to fill your stomach? Or are you here to engage your heart with the bread of life? What's your mindset? Is it, he preached too long. He wasn't that funny. Not enough music. Are you just absorbed in Jesus? What's your mind on? What's your preparation? Do you give any thought whatsoever to the gathering of God's people in preparing yourself for that? What are the results? Is your attitude different? Do you begin to practice and live it out? Is your hunger for God growing? Are you repenting of sin? By the way, that's a gift of God's grace. Repentance is not a bad thing. Repentance is a good thing. Because faith family, it's really sad to think about the many people after 9-11 who ran to church for meaning, but they didn't find it. They got temporary comfort, but they didn't get Christ. But what may be more sad than that are the people who sit in church every single week and don't experience Him. They've got a really good routine going, but they've never experienced the real thing. Coelho's advice to you is play it safe, keep your distance. But I'm here to tell you that the gospel calls to you this. Look to the one who tore the veil and don't be distant. Draw near. Because of Jesus Christ, we don't have to guard our steps. We can fully engage our hearts. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. What what is God speaking to you about? Maybe you're here and the conviction that you're feeling is, I'm not a Christian. I I know that, that my life is not centered on Jesus. That I've never turned from my sin and put my faith in Him. Would you do that today? Others of you, maybe you know Him, but you just feel like, okay, all honesty, this has been routine for far too long. My mouth says a lot, but my heart does nothing. And God, would you break me right now? Would you draw me close to Yourself? Let me feel Your presence. Let me experience the the joy of worship. Bring me back to the heart of what this is all about. Holy Spirit, do your work as we worship together. In Jesus' name, amen.